I want to thank our sponsor, Planet Ford. Planet Ford has always been a proud supporter of law enforcement in the community, providing customer service and fleet management, sales and service. If you're looking for that personal quality service, contact Planet Ford in spring or online at planetford.com. Scene today. I'm your host, Dan Zintek. We talk about current and future issues facing law enforcement, forensics, and crime scene investigation. Uh, today, we have the CEO of OTHRAM, uh, David, in the studio, and talk to us about some of the advances in DNA, some of the changes in DNA. So David, thank you so much for coming and joining us today. Uh, so, to give a little bit uh, a basis of, of where, I guess, your company is different uh, from things we've done. Uh, given a little background in, in DNA and uh, for people listening, we, we've all heard it. It's been just about you know, all the crime shows and everything else. Everybody wants DNA on, on the scene and what happened with the DNA. Most of that, at least in probably I'd say five years ago, all dealt with us comparing it to what we know as CODIS, the Combined DNA System, which houses uh, evidence from unsolved crimes. It houses felons that have had their uh, DNA submitted and trying to cross-match these things. But in recent years, um, we have started looking at other avenues such as familial DNA and genetic DNA and those type of things that has brought new life to some cold cases. And, and David, that's one of the things that, that you're uh, company does. So uh, I guess just to sort of start out with, um, David, your background, um, I know you have uh, your PhD in um, from uh, Baylor, yes? And so you started in, in cancer research, yes? Am I correct on that? Or um, you were you're doing I, something in the medical part? Yeah, it's just biomedical research at uh, Baylor College of Medicine. And from there, how did how did you get the idea for, for this? Because obviously now you're just you're dealing with forensics. You're now dealing with criminal cases and, and taking your knowledge and putting it, it out here. So what what's sort of the the, the shift to this? Yeah, it's a good question. I um I, you know before grad school, I got my my start working um, at UT Southwestern uh, Medical Center in Dallas, and that was one of the original sites for the Human Genome Project. And so, so I did some work uh, related to the Human Genome Project, got interested in genetics and in DNA testing. And so that, that's all I've ever done, really. And trained at Baylor College of Medicine. Most of the work was biomedical in nature. Um, did a little bit of work uh, in the consumer genomic space, you know, to help folks dig into their ancestry, reconnect with relatives. But primarily, it's been uh, biomedical or diagnostic in nature. And, uh, you know, when, when, when we were building some of the early technologies to help kind of drive this kind of advanced DNA testing in the clinic, this was about was maybe 10 years ago, um, there was a lot, of, a lot of skepticism and question as to whether these kind of new technologies would ever make it to the clinic. People were using older foundational methods for DNA testing. And we worked alongside a lot of other groups to show that these really advanced and cost-effective methods could transform medicine, and they have. And uh, it was a few years back uh, a bunch of us, not just me, that had been working on various uh, medical projects and, and kind of uh, diagnostic technologies, uh, decided that the, the, the field's really matured and there's now a lot of places where you can do medical testing. And I, I always draw the analogy that you can probably go to any street corner here and find a, a lab that will test you for uh, your, your favorite uh, DNA test that would, that would give you some insight into a diagnostic 
uh, for some medical condition. But but where do you go to test a crime scene, right? Like there's there's not a lot of places to do that. Um, so so we wanted to look at another way to bring value with DNA testing. Take the technology that we uh, had developed to help kind of drive growth of this tech, you know of this kind of testing in the medical space and go bring it to another area that has a lot of importance. Um, there's obviously a lot of need. There's importance, and then and then there's demand just because uh, there's not a lot of people working in this area. And um, and to come back to your earlier question about you know kind of contrasting what we do with um, you know what you'd mentioned related to CODIS, the, the CODIS system and this is like the foundation of forensic testing over the last you know, 30 years is 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 as you said there there are about 20 markers. It was, it was less markers originally, but there's about 20 markers now. Well, the, the original thought behind it, so, and there were, there were like 13 in the beginning, now there's like 20, but it was all what they called junk, right? It was, it was non-identifiable DNA, and, and whether that was intended on the purpose, but back then, uh, or I guess even currently, you, you don't look at that as far as what we have recorded in CODIS to say, um, that's, that's a black male, that's a white male, that's of green eyes, that's of blue eyes, those type of things. It was just, it was nearly like a serial number, right? Like this serial number matches this individual. Uh, if we find some evidence that has that serial number, it belongs that, and I know I'm making it very simplistic there, but, but that was sort of how we had CODIS. And I remember going to a um, to training in a New York Medical Examiner's Office, and it was, I think, sort of probably the start of a lot of some of that ideas it was back um uh, probably around 07 or uh, 08 and we had uh, students there uh, that were testing we, we all were swabbed and they were writing down characteristics what eye color did you have what you know mm -hmm. different things about you and they were trying to narrow down basically the the dna to for identifying characteristics and that was sort of and again i don't know if they were the first ones or they were just uh you know basically redoing what someone else has done to prove that this is correct. But it, it sort of has shifted to that, where now uh, sort of in what y'all are getting is, is you're finding more characteristics, you're finding more uh, relation to area and things like that. Well, I, I, guess, I guess the way I would see it is with, with, with what's been used in the last 30 years, you've got 20 markers, right, and, and using your serial analogy, um, you can you can essentially index somebody on 20 markers, and then and then if you see uh, those 20 markers appear at another crime scene, there's fancy math and population genetics that will tell you the odds of someone else having those same 20 markers is is very tiny, and so that's how you connect people. the 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 issue that we're trying to solve um, initially is with 20 markers, it's very very easy to establish that you are somewhere, and to some extent, you can also search for like a uh, a, a parent-child relationship, so this familial DNA testing that some states have opened up. It's the idea that you can do a, par a partial match on these 20 markers and maybe establish a sibling relationship or a parent-child relationship. But for example, if you are my cousin or my half-brother, it becomes very hard to use 20 markers. There's not enough power in, in statistics of 20 markers to, to be able to, to show that, uh, that we're in fact related. And so, you know, for example, if you and I were brothers and we looked at 20 markers, there's a good chance, you know, at least half of those markers would be different, right? You may have, you may have gotten uh, 10 markers from mom, I got 10 markers from dad. So we now differ by half of our markers. If you're my cousin, you won't, you won't be able to detect those relationships. So um, 
CODIS, CODIS is, a, is, a, is a really good system for confirming identity, and it's a good system for establishing you against yourself at a scene. It's just not very powerful in looking at more distant relationships. And so what we do at Authorum, for example, is we're looking at tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of markers. These aren't necessarily markers that have any, any functional role. They're just, they're just random markers throughout the DNA as well. It's just that because we're looking at tens of thousands of these markers, we can begin to examine kind of longer range relationships. We can, we can determine if you and I are first or second cousins, and you wouldn't be able to do that with traditional testing. Now, on top of that, there's, of course, the other things you mentioned, um, but, but I think the, the core issue is now that the technology has changed and become more tractable and affordable, um, can we take advantage of just simply more data? Higher resolution data, more markers, gives us the ability to make more sensitive uh, claims about how, how folks are and aren't related. So now in doing this, I know, um, and obviously there's been advances in, in time frames. I know that uh, uh, in the past, uh, and may have changed, you certainly are the expert in that, if I were to take a DNA sample and submit it to a lab from the time that the technician starts working on it, for a normal uh, CODIS thing, looking at about probably about eight hours of processing this DNA sample. Um, for has and I know that there's the rapid DNA test that, they, that they've looked at and they've gotten that down to about 90 minutes that we can possibly get a sample. Going with the extended uh, samples that you're speaking of, uh, how does that affect the time frame? Like if I were to give a sample and or the tech takes it and starts working on this, what's what's the time frame of getting something like that? I mean, the time the time frame is pretty variable. It doesn't take long to do the testing, but much like with CODIS testing. Um, the testing's batched, right? So it's it's very much uh, akin to what you'd see like in an airline model. You know, as you noted, the equipment's expensive, and um, and you know you buy an airplane, it costs a lot of money sure, to right. make it. Co you could fly it every day. The, to make it cost effective, you try to fly it when you can fill the plane. Right. And so the the real driver of the turnaround time and getting the work done is 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 how and how much you can batch together. Um, in in a, in, a, in a flight, you know, and so well, and I've seen that with the uh, rapid DNA test, and uh, where they would have a disposable cartridge, mm -hmm. right, that you know keeps everything separate, and everything, but you can put in five samples at a time. Well, the cartridge cost you, you know, I think it was at, at the time thirty five hundred dollars. It doesn't matter if you do one sample or you do five samples. Yeah. It's it's that for that cartridge, right? Yeah, it, it, like I said, it's like an airplane. I mean, airplane runs on a certain amount of gas, and to, so to a large extent, operating that airplane is, is really not connected to the number of people on the plane. And so when you get more folks to buy a ticket, then the ticket prices come down and, and you can you can fly more cost effectively. So the same is true in, in all kinds of in most kinds of laboratory testing, particularly in the kind of testing we do. You'll have, you know, in the case of rapid DNA, a cartridge. In our case, we have uh, what's called a flow cell. But we have like a, we have uh, disposable reagents that we use. And, and those costs are fixed regardless of how many, uh, you know, actual experiments or um, or extracts that we're processing. Now, after the, the process done, I know that um, in speaking of rapid DNA, I know there's a, there's a part of that process that's like checking against itself over and over and whatnot. Uh, obviously, it's the same for y'all of once the initial process, and it, I, maybe it's part of that process that it's, it's checking, I guess. There's accuracy checks and balances and all that throughout it. Yeah, for, forensic testing is very different than other kinds of testing. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of controls that you have to, to use. There's um, a lot of a lot of restrictions on how you process things, right? Like you wouldn't want to run a known and an unknown together. So um, you know, there, there's there's a general category of lab 
right, of which there could be academic labs, research labs, medical labs. For, forensic work is, is very special and it's got very specialized needs. And that's why they have forensic labs. Otherwise, um, otherwise none of us would have jobs. So. Right. So, so, so yeah. now uh, I know one thing that it was a great benefit and then there was some issues with it. And so um, on the Golden State Killer case that sort of uh, broke open some, some conversation. So uh, for those that aren't familiar with that, uh, what there were uh, many databases, one that most people are familiar with, probably 23andMe, where people send in their genetic information, they built the database and all that. And um, originally it was that uh, if you did not want law enforcement to have access, you had to opt out of having your information. Um, and so the police were able to access that database, find uh, family linkage, uh, and able to uh, direct to that particular killer in that case, which opened up some privacy issues and concerns of uh, did they actually, you know, volunteer this information, right? And so they they changed the way they work, said, okay, well, now it's an opt-in thing, right? If you, if you don't mind them having it, uh, and that's, that's sort of their thing. But accessing the Ancestry databases, um, just like accessing code, it, it has to be there for you to look for. Right. So are, what are y'all currently doing? I mean, do you have a local database that y'all have started developing? Is there still access that labs work intertwined with one another to, to access the larger data? Yeah, that's a good question. So we, um, we have a database uh, that's called DNA Solves. And um, we actually have a, a web page around this where you can, if you want to, volunteer data. Um, it's DNA Solves, S-O-L-V-E-S dot com. And, and what you can do on DNA Solves um, is you can submit data that you've gotten from other consumer genetics companies. So maybe you tested at company X or company Y. You've got a DNA profile that you use to find relatives. If you wanted to contribute that profile to DNA Solves, um, then you could do that. And it would be used exclusively in a law enforcement investigation um, to either identify you know, someone that's unknown. We, we have a lot of cases where there's someone's found in the woods or someone's found somewhere else. And um, they're not always victims of crimes. Sometimes they are victims of crimes. If they're a victim of a crime, how do you how do you work a crime for someone you don't know, right? So IDing the person is critical to then seeking justice for them. Um, and then, of course, the other scenario is like the one you mentioned with the Golden State Killer, where we have DNA from an unknown person that could be a suspect in a crime. And so likewise, if, if you have the inclination to help um, you, your DNA could be used because you may be a distant relative. And I talked to you earlier about the tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of markers that Authorin puts together. Like, you could be a very distant relative and not know to someone that is uh, unidentified, either a victim or a perp. And, and in being able to, uh, to pull that data together, we, we, can, we can have a kind of a faster path to identification. Now, I'll tell you, on DNA Solves, there's, DNA Solves is not a genealogical database. There's nothing you can do on DNA Solves. If you come to the website, it's pretty obvious. All it is is for solving cases. Right, and so, cases. so DNA Solves has a very simple model. Uh, you, you, you volunteer data towards the pursuit of a case, and, and there's nothing else to do there. We don't do any medical stuff. We don't return any genealogical search results or anything. It's not publicly searchable. It's only searchable in a law enforcement investigation. So. It's a. It's pretty it's not, straightforward. It's not meant for ancestry purposes. Not Correct. Meant for yeah. So, so there's there's literally no reason to come there unless you specifically are excited about solving a case. So that's how DNA solves operates, and that's operated by Authram. 
And we do other things on DNA Solves, too. We showcase cases that are interesting. Um, sometimes we even uh, raise money for cases that don't have the proper uh, funding to get them off the ground. Like, it's just that, that website's all about trying to work cases. Uh, and, and, and by the way, it's also worth noting, like, Authorum is a forensic-only lab. So, for example, whereas a lot of other research labs will do things uh, in, in a spectrum of categories, including medicine and other things, we, we don't do anything. We don't do any medical. We do nothing except for human ID for law enforcement investigations, which I think makes our scope very narrow uh, and I think is comforting to folks that don't want to necessarily intertwine their data with lots of different applications. Um, there are, there's another database, which I think was the one you were referring to, um, that uh, that they had uploaded the results from the th from the Golden State Killer. Um, there's a public database called uh, GEDmatch, um, okay. and so that's that's a database that, uh, as you noted, originally, um, well, anyways, the way it is now is you have to opt in. So mm -hmm. if you explicitly tell um, the folks at GEDmatch, I'd like my data to be used, it'd be used. If you don't opt in, you use it for genealogical purposes only. The reason there's an opt-in, opt-out model there is because the database was created originally to drive genealogical research. So now you're, you're saying, in addition to that, you could also help solve a crime. It's a little different than DNA solves. It's obviously older. It's been around for, um, you know, I think almost a decade. It's been around for a while. And it was originally built to bridge the divide that, uh, that, that happens when you test at different companies. So um, you mentioned 23andMe. 23andMe is never allowed search. So there's like law enforcement. They don't work with law enforcement. So 23andMe, there's, if you put your data there, neither you nor law enforcement can search. So I'll give you a very common scenario that kind of spawned this whole GEDmatch stuff is that you're my brother, right? Back to our analogy. You tested at Ancestry.com. I tested at 23andMe. The databases don't talk don't to each ever. other. Yeah, so we would never, never know we're brothers. And so GEDmatch was created as a, as a public kind of a forum to share data that you've collected elsewhere. And then in doing that, then we would actually identify that we're related because we've both put our data into GEDmatch. Now, is GEDmatch separate? In other words, like these companies all feed to GEDmatch, or is GEDmatch no, no, a company all the, of itself? Yeah, so, well, GEDmatch was uh, run by uh, a few genealogists. Um, it was recently acquired by a company, but GEDmatch is a separate entity. So just like DNA Solves is a separate thing that's operated by Authram, and 23andMe and Ansa, those are all separate companies. So none of the companies, uh, to my knowledge, communicate and intertwine. The, the connections between these are facilitated by people that volunteer their information. So you may have tested, like I said, at Ancestry, and, and, and you see on the news that, that you know someone got caught um, or someone was identified after years of being unknown, and, and you feel the inclination that you want to help you know, identify the next person. So you actively pull your data from you know, Ancestry or 23andMe, and you'll contribute to one of these many databases. And so there's, there's a handful of databases that are usable by law enforcement. And yep. if you put your data in there and you opt in, then, then it can be used to help solve a crime. Now, the one thing that, that I've noticed in, in some case reviews and things involving uh, Ancestry work is, um, I say it's, it's not as simple I guess is just saying, uh, you know, uh, poof, it's the brother, so it's Bob, right? There, there's a lot of uh, still labor-intensive work by people doing some ancestry research uh, into uh, where this family is and, and uh, who's related and possibilities. I mean, we've narrowed it down to uh, three brothers or we've narrowed it down to this area. I mean, so um, there's still a lot of hands-on research in this type of, uh, I guess, use of DNA. Yeah, and, and that whole area is just the beginning, right? Because 
you may narrow it down to some brothers or you may narrow it down to someone else and then um, you know it's it's uncommon for a case to be driven just by DNA testing usually what happens is that information is overlaid with work that the investigators put together um, and then the investigators are the ones that actually go take that information right because we, we generate at Altrum we generate leads um, you know candidate identities but we're, we're not actually like working we're not working or solving a case we're generating information that they use and then overlaid with things that they've discovered leads towards a hypothesis. You know, I think this person might be the person that we're trying to identify. And then it's through their investigative work that the lead is confirmed. And, and by the way, it's worth noting that, um, you know, when you use these advanced methods, new as they are, um, the, the way you confirm that you've arrived at the answer is, uh, is that you use CODIS testing. So, so the, the, just it's worth noting that the whole flow is basically that you've done CODIS testing. That, that still is the, the most robust and best way to get started in an investigation. You use CODIS, it's been around for 30 years, it works, it's understood, and, uh, and it's been well tested in court. If the CODIS profile comes back matched to someone that has no identity, then at that point, right, rather than just right. wait and hope that they end up in CODIS one day, which by the way, if they're an unidentified victim, they never end up in CODIS because they're dead. Right. Um, then you, you flip it to this other kind of testing, collect tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of markers at Authorum, We'll build out information that then leads to a, a candidate identity. Law enforcement does their work. They figure out who the person is, and then they confirm it at the end with STR testing, with CODIS testing again. So it's a really great process. So this new testing doesn't replace, but rather it complements and accelerates and enhances what you can do with traditional CODIS testing. But the investigation ideally is bookended with a test that is well understood and studied, and, and, and it confirms. And that's why I told you originally, like, CODIS isn't always great at finding people, but CODIS is exceptional at confirming that you found somebody. Found the right person, right. So, and, and speaking of, of what y'all do and how y'all help, so I, I have a case that's a most recent one, and it actually um, was off of the DNA uh, solves. Um, so in this particular case, it's from uh, uh, a cold case, which y'all have helped out with greatly. This one... Um, uh, is uh, McDonald County Sheriff's Office uh, that y'all worked with. In December 1990, uh, a couple walked down the road and found uh, decomposed remains of a female that had been hogtied and dumped that was sexually assaulted and murdered. So this is back from 1990. And, and up until uh, I'm gathering, uh, this was in March, um, that... It's like literally a week ago. Yeah, they, they, <laughs> uh, they didn't know who this person was. So it, it was... Uh, a uh, Jane Doe. Uh, this case is over 30 years old, uh, not knowing uh, who this person is. And, and in working homicide, one of the first things that, that helps us is knowing who the victim is. Because once we know who the victim is, we know who their associates are, we know where they're supposed to be, we know the contacts. I mean, it, it starts a lead process for us that's unbelievable once we know who they are. But having that unidentified person uh, really causes some issues with us continuing the investigation. So uh, tell me a little bit about, so again, this was a week ago, and this is all the way back from 30 years ago. So how did y'all get involved and, and help on this? So, yeah, so, so there's, there's, a, there's a government database. Uh, it's called NamUs, N-A-M-U-S uh, .gov. And, and NamUs tracks uh, many but not all of the unidentified persons that are, that are in the United States. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's worth noting um, the, the DNA testing and the work around NamUs is actually done by a UNT. Um, it's also in Texas. That's yep. right. This is about three hours north of us in Fort Worth. And so, and we have a really great relationship, work well together. So it's kind of cool. Um, 
half of the unidentified remains that are that are that are that are tested in the U.S. go to to UNT. So Texas really is a powerhouse. Where um, Authram's the only company in the United States that does this advanced kind of testing in house. We've vertically integrated evidence to leads um, for for investigators. So we're the only company in the United States that does this, and we're in Houston. And then right. we've got this like you know essentially one of a kind center that does a lot of the initial work to catalog these unidentifieds that's based in Fort Worth. So it's kind of a cool, uh, Which cool is, Texas right, fact. Right, right down the road, of course, right down the road in Texas is still four hours away, but it's, it's right yeah, down the road. Well, <laughs> what, what can you do is Texas. So, um, you could drive all day and never leave Texas. But uh, uh, so, so, so in this case, um, you know, we, we will eventually, we usually get work directly from law enforcement Sometimes we'll, we'll hear of cases that have kind of gone cold, they've been intractable, and we'll reach out to law enforcement and offer. And so we do a, we do a lot of work in Missouri. Um, and we came across this case, it was in NamUs, and it's just, it's, been, it's just a case that's kind of been kept alive. It's a, it's a, it's a heartbreaking case because there's, there's literally no leads. Um, she's nicknamed Grace Doe, and they, and they called her that because the investigators were told um, she'd only be identified by the grace of God. Like there's like no leads at all. And, and, and it's not for lack of trying. They have, they have been through, you know, um, I, I think through hundreds of leads, uh, tremendous amounts of exclusions. They built, they built a profile, a CODIS profile for this woman. Um, they uh, have excluded tons of people, worked leads. They've done multiple forensic uh, reconstructions to figure out what she might have looked like. Um, they, they tried everything. Sure. Bottom line is she was found, uh, you know, months after she had died, likely. Um, she had some unique uh, dental work that maybe pointed that she wasn't, you know, from McDonald County, um, maybe from a bigger city, uh, but really nothing beyond that. And so the case went cold quick. Um, but at the same time, uh, we, we spoke uh, at the time uh, he was a sheriff, uh, Sheriff Hall. He, um, he spent a decade working on this case, I think since 2009, um, trying to figure out and work any lead that comes his way. So when you have a case like that of someone that's unidentified, there are skeletal remains remaining, um, but they've exhausted everything. Anthropological analysis, face reconstructions, you know, they've searched every database they can for dental records, fingerprints, whatever, and CODIS, right? And there's no result. Um, what do you do? And so there's cases like that that we like to get involved in because it's likely that uh, there's really nothing else that can be done unless you can nudge the investigation forward with some DNA testing. And as you noted, knowing who the victim is is the difference between being able to move forward or not. Right. Um, and, and then the second part of the investigation, which is, you know, what happened to her? I mean, she didn't tie herself up. So um, so we, we got involved. Uh, we took, this is a case that was not, uh, not funded, right? They didn't really have funding to pursue this case. They spent a lot of money trying to work this case over the years in other ways. And so we started a campaign on DNA solves. We posted information about the case and we crowdfunded it. We just told everyone, there's a, a very large internet community of people that really care about these, uh, about these cases, kind of advocate for cold cases. And we crowdfunded uh, the funds necessary to do the testing. And there was a lot of support for this case. Again, it's kind of a heartbreaking case and I think it's bugged a lot of people for a lot of years. And uh, once we collected the funding necessary, we worked with the agency to get skeletal remains. They went to our lab. Um, there's a lot of work we do up front to make sure that we can we can help. Um, we, we cannot help every case, right. and the well, DNA you have to have a good DNA sample. I mean, simple. You, as that. you need yeah, you need decent evidence. You need decent uh, DNA from that evidence. And so so I always always warn people like 
We, we love helping, but we cannot help in every case. The good news is, since we're the only company that does this in-house, um, you know, we, we've, we've, we've come across a lot, of, a lot of evidence and a lot of casework, and we've become exceptionally um, good at predicting if we can bring a value. And our goal is to basically minimize consumption of evidence or budgets. And so you just don't want to get involved if we don't think there's a good shot. Uh, in this particular case, the skeletal remains passed kind of our inspection. We were able to extract DNA um, that passed QC. And so we proceeded into testing. And once we did the testing, we started uh, building out, uh, you know, a family tree uh, for folks that had distantly matched. There weren't any close relatives to this person. Um, you know, every, every, all the matches were greater than second cousin matches. So like you said, it wasn't like an instant answer. But in building out family trees for folks that were matches, and then knowing that the unknown person is genetically at a certain distance away right. from all these matches, if you've constructed a tree of known people, then you essentially build a scaffold. And there's only a certain number of ways you can kind of fit in the last puzzle piece. And, uh, and so we narrowed it in and identified a few folks that we thought um, could be close relatives, reasonably close relatives of the unknown person. And so we came back to law enforcement and, and discussed that with, uh, with Sheriff Hall and said, you know, look, there's, there's a good chance that some of these folks may know who this person is. Um, the, there's a twist in this case, which is that, uh, that uh, the victim was adopted out at a young age. I think a lot of the kids were adopted out at a young age. So this is, this is an unusual scenario in which um, and obviously jumping to the end, we identified her, but in identifying her and finding her birth family, right, which you'd be genetically related to, they don't have all the details. You'll notice where that. Where she went, where correct, she's going correct. Right. I mean, so you'll notice. person doesn't really fall under what we normally are tracking. Correct. So you'll notice there's like a younger picture of her, um, her as a child, but there's not, uh, you know, she, she, was, she was murdered in her early 20s, and, and there isn't a good picture of her. Um, you know, at that age, uh, she, her siblings have always been looking for her, uh, and, and they, you know, they, they wanted to reconnect, uh, hoping that she was still alive and, and living somewhere. And, and so, you know, on one hand, we've reconnected, unfortunately, not, not in the best of circumstances, right. but they don't know what, what's happened. And so the investigators are now working to kind of figure out who might be responsible. But um, to, to go back a little bit, we identified these leads. Uh, law enforcement did their investigation and, and came to the conclusion um, that, uh, that we have, may have identified, you know, a, a half-sibling or a sibling. And so we, uh, we facilitated the confirmation testing. Um, obviously, the true confirmation will come from STR testing, um, which is that testing that you do um, when, you, when you enter a profile into CODIS. And, um, and, and so, again, I think her identity has been restored. The challenge now is to kind of trace what happened. Um, she was adopted out. Um, a lot of the people that were involved may not be alive anymore. Yeah, so um, at that point, you got to go back to the adoption, like where, where the adoption agency is, if there's still records, where yep. she went to, and, and where and, from there. Yeah, this is a really great example of why DNA testing can be remarkably valuable in kind of getting a case out of a rut and pushing it forward. But, but DNA testing isn't alone solving anything. DNA testing is giving... Uh, some additional leads to the law enforcement folks to let them work the case. So they're very happy, and, and we're happy well, because oh, yeah. now, now they can work the case forward. But this is just the beginning of the story, and there's a lot of work to be done. We have, um, we have another case of an unidentified man. Um, this is actually, I believe, the, this is a, maybe the case that was uh, uh, solved with the least amount of DNA evidence uh, reported to date. It was a case in Snohomish County in Washington State. So this is another, this is a young man that was murdered 
And he was actually, um, uh, they think he was weighed down into a lake for like maybe seven years. And then his oh, body floated up at some point. Fishermen discovered it. And that's what started this chain of events. And, uh, and it's interesting because of the time difference between the discovery of his body and the reported missing, um, you know, mention of him being missing. You know, th those, those things were not together in time. And so that's what creates these kind of these gaps that make it hard to identify folks. And again, that's where DNA testing can kind of nudge the investigation forward by connecting two events that seem unrelated at the time. And um, in that case, as soon as they figured out who he was, this guy was not adopted. They knew who he was. We were able to track back to a living brother and father. And it didn't take a lot of interviewing for the uh, detectives, as, as you know, to piece together what happened. Where he was supposed to be, who he was supposed to be with. And who, who saw him last. And, you know, one thing leads to another, and now they know what happened. So, so I would say that in a lot of the cases, it's, it's always important to identify people that are unknown because these families are waiting. You know, um, they're always waiting. Whether or not they'll figure out who did it or not, like the families are waiting for an answer. Um, you know, uh, Shauna's family was waiting for an answer. We have a, another girl we identified. Um, we helped uh, law enforcement identify from Pecos, Texas. She had drowned in a pool under suspicious circumstances in 1966. This is like 55 years ago. And, um, and, and, you know, it'll be hard to figure out, you know, whether she drowned by accident, on purpose. Right. But, but she has family in Kansas that have been waiting all this time, and her siblings are now in their 70s and 80s, and they, they've been waiting. They've been waiting for answers. The world kind of continues on, but these people that lose family members are always waiting. And so, so I think, at minimum, it's critical to work these cases of unidentified remains because there are people waiting, and they can't wait forever. They don't live forever. And so there's an urgency to tackle these cases in the late 70s and, and you know, well, mid-80s. And you talk about waiting, and obviously, you know, we're talking about whatever happened to my loved one, meaning that uh, as far as they're concerned, they just disappeared. They're just missing. I mean, they don't yeah. know they're dead. I mean, they're they're about to get some horrible information when we do identify them. But at least there's an answer as to, I mean, because there's certainly the question, why did they walk out? Why have they never contacted us? Why, you know, where are they at? Where they, I hope they're living a good life. I don't know what's happened to them. You know, at least they have an answer to, to their individual, right? You know, uh, even though it's not the one that they would like, uh, they still at least know, uh, I guess, where they, what happened to them and, and what time. Yeah, yeah. So about how many cases are, are y'all uh, currently, I guess, capable of doing at a time uh, I, currently at your lab? I, I don't know. We're not, we're not anywhere near um, capacity. I mean, the, the, the newer technologies for DNA testing scale really well. So um, I think, I think we could take on any number of cases. I think we could easily scale to take on even more cases um, so that's that's not really a challenge. I think I think the impediment and the uh, and the and the friction to working these cold cases is not the lab technology. I think it's uh, getting uh, getting information about the cases. They have to be cataloged, and that's why it's so valuable to have organizations like NamUs. We're also like National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Right. They they have seven hundred children they're trying to identify right now. So cataloging the information and finding the evidence. It's kind of like the non-glamorous part, but that's a critical thing. It's like, where is the evidence for this? Um, I think that's a bottleneck, but now there's thousands of those. The other is is a funding bottleneck, right? Like not every, so I told you like with Grace Doe, her identity was within reach. We were able to identify her pretty quickly. The, the challenge wasn't technology in the lab, and it wasn't that I didn't have time to run it. It's that we had to, we had to, we had to fund it. And, and this is a small county. They don't have a line item in their budget for this. And so we had to crowdfund it. And, Crowdfunding is the non-optimal way to do things, especially at scale. 
And so I think as uh, the technology becomes more widely used, I think as more people hear about it, um, we'll transition from these stories. They, they seem exceptional, but they're not. They're, they're what could happen if we employ this broadly. And, and I'd, I'd like to see in the future that these cases go from exception to expectation. Just as and part of our normal routine. They should be, yeah. In fact, in fact, in the future, you should demand it. And, uh, and, and at some point, you'll feel irresponsible not to have tried it. There are, there are people that commit crimes and end up in CODIS repeatedly, right? And they don't get identified. We're working a case right now. Um, the unknown profile has been in CODIS uh, several times, I think six or seven times. How many times should you be in CODIS Right, for right now crime. it's just unknown evidence. You yeah, still but it's over and over. Six right. crime scenes. Like at some point, it's like you know what? It's time to identify this guy. It's an it's obviously an active uh, an active uh, uh, perpetrator, you know, perpetrator, yeah, or whatever, yeah. It, it, yeah, you shouldn't you shouldn't be in CODIS once, in my opinion. But when you're right. there six times, it's time to try their methods. So I think I think we'll shift from um, this kind of exceptional news story to it being routine and expected. And then I think eventually, like you'll you'll be negligent not to use it. And um, as that happens, I think policy will, uh, you know, will incorporate these new technologies. They're new technologies. It takes time for it to, as you know, make its way through the chain, end up in grant announcements. Grants are a big way that, um, you know, grants from the DOJ are a big way that law enforcement agencies tackle these cases. And so as those grants update and, and incorporate these newer kinds of methods, then funding will be unleashed to work these cases, and you'll start to see that ROI. Um, you know, the same thing happened with the end the backlog uh, movement, right? There's sex assault kits that have never been tested. And when the DOJ set up the Saki program, the Sex Assault Kit Initiative, that funding has enabled folks to identify, catalog, and then test those kits. But, but I'll, I'll note two, two facts for you, because we talked about both of these things today. Um, when you run a sex assault kit uh, through CODIS, you do the DNA test and run it through CODIS, you identify the unknown uh, person 15% of the time, one five. So 85% of the time you have not identified who they are. Right. And, um, and that leaves a, a lot to be desired in terms of other technologies that could come in, operate on that DNA extract to identify information that would help them actually figure out who the person is and close the case. The, the other number that I'll tell you, going back to like Shauna's example, is that for unidentified remains, CODIS will identify uh, those folks less than 1% of the time. It's not a surprise, right? CODIS no, is dominated right. by by criminal profiles and not by unidentified. But but it's worth it's worth saying that out loud, which is that, you know, if you do a hundred CODIS tests, uh, less than one of them are going to actually re produce an identity. And so there is this this gaping hole right now in especially in the unidentified. Um, the National Institute of Justice calls it the silent mass disaster, which is this accumulation of unidentified folks um, year after year, and they never get identified bunch of them never get identified and they just compound and form this gigantic backlog of unidentified persons in the US and incorporating that these other cold cases I think the estimates are that there could be a couple hundred thousand cold cases I'm sure that's an underestimate um, in the United States alone that that have, have been stuck a lot of those are going to have DNA evidence a lot of these unidentified remains they've got the remains well and so and up to this point I mean most cold case it has been dependent on DNA now it's always been dependent on let's let's go back to this 1990 case and let's see what evidence we have and let's take any DNA that we couldn't have tested back then because it just wasn't strong enough back then. We're going to put it in CODIS and so that that really has been what cold case honestly has done for the past uh, you know five six years and and this is just a, a new method 
that hopefully, uh, again, in the advances, that it does become part of a regular process, a checklist of have we tried this, have we tried that. So if, if I'm an agency and I want to get in touch with y'all to, to talk about a case, uh, first of all, how do I get in touch with y'all? So um, you, can, you can reach out to us via our website. It's uh, authorum.com, O-T-H-R-E-M.com. Um, you, can, uh, you can email us. The law enforcement can email us at solve, S-O-L-V-E, at authorum.com. And, and we, have a, we have a law enforcement portal, basically, that they can put casework into. We'll evaluate it, discuss it with them, ask questions, usually review all the lab reports, and then make a decision on whether we can help. So if, if, I've, if I've contacted you, what would I expect to be my next step as an agency? You said there's a portal. So what, what are you going to want from me as an agency to, yeah, so, to get so you the started? Yeah, so the way it works is you reach out, and you'll, you'll, create a, uh, you'll create a new submission on a system. We have a system called Request. So you, you basically will, will submit a request for analysis, and we'll ask for your contact information because we work with law enforcement directly. Um, we'll ask you to submit all the lab reports that you have. So if you've ever done DNA testing, um, anthropological analysis, any kind of analysis on, on, on the evidence, um, we'll ask for those reports. Very often we can read those reports and learn things. You know, we like to know all the things that worked and didn't work in the past. And for cold cases, there's a lot of those things. Right. Because all of that gives us some clues as to the strategy we should take. There's many ways for us to do the work we do. And so we try to, we try to really benefit and, and, uh, and, uh, and, and learn from what was done before so we don't do the same thing twice, right? And so, um, so we'll ask for all the lab reports. And then we'll ask for some of the case information and just basic circumstance details, like what is the source of evidence, right? What year did it happen? A little bit of detail so we have context. Um, understanding the context of the case, obviously whether it's an unidentified victim or, or suspect, and then understanding the lab reports, the anthropological analysis, and other things that had gone into 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 working details for the case, that collectively gives us what we need. It takes it doesn't even take five minutes to submit the request. It's very simple, and so we'll take a look at it, we'll review it. Um, sometimes there's advanced scenarios where you have like mixtures, you have multiple people in the same right. DNA extract, so we'll we'll dig into that a little bit. Um, and once, once we feel like we're on the same page, uh, we'll make a determination at the lab, the lab does, that we can either accept or, or not accept that evidence. It doesn't mean the evidence isn't good enough we don't accept. It just means we like to accept evidence that we know has a good chance of being successfully tested. And, and generally, that means we've done something similar successfully. So we've done enough of these to where we know, like, if we take this, it generally has a nice outcome versus if we take this, it's very risky. And we'll communicate that back to the agency. The question you should be asking yourself isn't, does it work? The question is, how often does it work? Because evidence is finite, budgets are finite. You don't want to just burn through evidence and money uh, right. willy-nilly. Well, and, and you make a point, because when we're talking about DNA, we're talking about consumption. We're talking about, yeah. uh, we're going to use this sample that can never be used again once we consume it. Yep. So are we using the best you know, probative test for That's us correct. to get to get Is it a answer? forensic test? Or you just, you know, there, there, there are some folks that just, you know, send things wherever. Like, is, is, it, is it a forensic test being operated in a forensic environment? Um, has that environment experienced other evidence that was similar to that and had a successful outcome? There's a lot of questions to ask. So, so I glossed over it, but it's a pretty, pretty rigorous review. Once we decide that we're going to accept the work, at that point, we'll send uh, information over to law enforcement. They get like a little barcode. Um, and so when they submit evidence to us, either in person or sometimes by, by courier, 
Um, when the evidence arrives, it's got a barcode, and we can immediately initiate chain of custody and tie it to the investigation. So we have a full chain of custody process. It's one of the advantages of having an in-house operation, right? There's no outsourcing anywhere. So the evidence never leaves the building uh, until it's time to go back to the agency. And then, and then we'll do uh, an inspection. So we have a kind of a deconstruction of the, of the package uh, with photographic documentation. Um, you'll probably know that's very important for chain of custody because you may have an identifier on the tube that was in a bag with another identifier that was in a box. So we, every step we have to document uh, in case there's a need to present uh, evidence of chain of custody uh, at a later date. Uh, mostly important for like cases that will be prosecuted, like suspect cases, but we treat every case as if it's going to go to court. And then we do a laboratory process step called um, our QC check. And what that is is like a, a kind of it's like on a vehicle, like a multi-point inspection to determine that the properties of the, of the material we have are as expected and something, again, that we feel. Because there's another chance we could say, you know what, we looked at it. When we saw it in person, I, I don't think it's going to work. And we have a chance right. to say, hold that evidence. Like you said, technology improves. Wait till later. It might be better in six months. If it passes the QC, then we go on to testing. From testing, we then go on to a data analysis step where we, where we basically reconstruct those tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of markers in the DNA. Then it goes into what we discussed earlier, the records research, tree building, trying to infer leads, candidate identities. That goes back to law enforcement. They do their investigation. Sometimes we help confirm the identity. Sometimes they go to a second lab. It could be valuable to go to another lab and confirm it. If two labs using two methods get the same answer, that's, that's a really great fact. And so, um, and then after that, you know, the case the case moves on to the next step, right? It's got to be prosecuted and so on. So, so that's the I've, whole flow. If I've sent my stuff to you, obviously, uh, cases are different, right? Some are more complex than others. But what what would you say would be an average time from the time that I've I've sent you all my reports? I sent you everything that that y'all would have a determination that yes, let's let's move forward with this or let's not. We we we, we usually take I mean usually takes a few days. Um, it's not it doesn't take very long. To, uh, to make a decision once all the data is complete. There are situations where someone submits information to us and we're like, look, we need to take a look at the eGram report, but it takes them a day or two to get the report, then it comes to us. But once we have all the information in hand, it's, it's not a long process. And we have, um, we have the periodic uh, lab meetings, case review meetings, where we review sure. the casework that's been submitted. And, and you know, it's, it's a group decision. Bottom line is, like, the lab has to decide, right? I, I can't decide because the lab's the one that's stuck having to do the work. So right. I make sure if they're going to do the work that they're the ones that commit to doing it um, and not me on their behalf. And so they'll, they'll review it. We'll discuss, you know, if we have any concerns or, or any, we see any risks or anything, we'll discuss that openly with the law enforcement agencies. There's hundreds of thousands of cases to work. You, you know, you should work the ones that are going to most likely benefit from the technology first. So if so, uh, an average time frame, I guess, from from start to me having an answer, are we looking at a month? Are we looking at six months? So we generally like we'll generally go from like evidence arriving at our doorstep to a profile built in about twelve weeks. Okay. So um, we've done it faster. Um, you know, I think I told you before, economy of scales what really drives. Right. Sure. You know, um, the, but no one's ever complained about 12 weeks. I think think it can take over a year sometimes to get CODIS results in Texas. So uh, No, I have one that was five years old, yeah. No, it, it takes it <laughs> yeah. takes a while. So yeah. anywhere between six months to five years uh, is the range I've dealt with. On yeah, yeah. So we, we, we try to build profiles in 12 weeks. Now, the other question that you're asking is, like, how fast can the research produce an identity? That's kind of tricky. Sometimes it's very quickly, right? Sometimes it could take a long time. It could be hours. It could be weeks. Um, 
you know, we've had we've had some cases resolve, you know, over the weekend. Um, this case that I told you about in Snohomish County, this was the the gentleman that was weighed down in the in the lake. As it turns out, um, that profile was in, it was hard to build, right? The, the problem wasn't the genealogy. The problem was, you know, there was like twenty. There was about twenty human cells worth of DNA left. It was like oh. it was like two hundred picograms of DNA. It's like heading toward. It was one hundred eighty picograms actually. So this is heading towards like the limits of what CODIS could even do, right? Very little DNA left. And so the, the issue was, like, how do you test that amount of DNA? And we can test quantities of DNA at Othram that no other lab can test because um, we're using methods that were specifically designed for this thing. So once we built the profile, turns out we found a really close relative. And not only that, but the really close relative was a genealogist who loves solving <laughs> cases. So, I mean, when you have a case like that, everything lines up and, and uh, you know, the law enforcement talked to her. She couldn't be happier to help. And... And you know, by Sunday night, we knew what the answer was. Um, there are other cases, like this one with Shauna, that took longer because she was adopted out. And so even though the people that were genetically related to her wanted to help, they didn't really know much about her. It took a lot more time to confirm. So we, we'll generally time box the generation of a profile within 12 weeks, which I think is pretty competitive. Um, and, then, and, then, and then we see where it goes. We have another case. Um, this was, the, this was a, a sex assault murder of a, of a girl from Fort Worth, actually. Her name was Carla Walker. She was murdered in 1974. And, um, you know, th that's a case that uh, we, we were very lucky. That case took five weeks. And, and again, the generation of leads didn't take very long. But we've had other cases that we've been crunching on and it's taken months. Um, it really depends on the matches that you connect to, right? You need a certain number of matches. And then it also, there's other factors that matter, like, you know, is a person adopted? Um, are there non-paternal events, right? Are there scenarios where the tree shows a family structure, but they're not genetically related? Right? You could have a father that has been a father figure in that person's life, but isn't the genetic father, isn't the biological father. And so, you know, you could have generations where people only had one child and then others where they had 14 children. So the size of the family, the, 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 the quality of the records, the number of all those things kind of uh, interplay to, to drive a case to a quick or not so quick conclusion. But um, so so you know. being on the front end of this technology, where, where do you see the future? Where, where do you see, and I don't mean like receive more cases, where, but I mean uh, is like with rapid DNA coming along, things got shorter uh, and stuff. So, I mean, where do you see this particular technology going in, in the future advances? So, yeah, I think, I mean, from our perspective, like we'd like to clear out backlogs. I think, I think that as we clear out the sex assault kit backlog, Right? We're not really clearing it. What we're doing is we're, we're testing everything through CODIS, but we're moving it from untested backlog to unsolved backlog because you know over 80% of those cases that are tested still will remain unsolved. And then, of course, we talked about the backlog of the unidentified. So I think clearing out the backlog is important. I think the other thing is that in the future, there shouldn't be a backlog, right? These cases shouldn't go cold. Um, this case involving Carla Walker, this guy came and uh, raped and murdered her. And he, sh you know, in, in today's time, it shouldn't take decades. Like this technology isn't for cold cases, it's for cases that don't have leads. And so I think in the future, you uh, do the CODIS testing, it comes back you know, without a match, and then you just proceed to this method. And we in fact have worked some contemporary cases. We do contemporary and cold. The ones we announce tend to be the cold cases because those are the ones that are less frequently prosecuted. And so law enforcement is a little bit more easygoing about letting us share the stories. Obviously, active cases we will not report for a while. Right. We never report a case without permission or unless law enforcement does. 
But but we work a lot of active, you know, kind of contemporary cases too. As soon as CODIS hasn't worked, you need to move to this kind of method. And I think if we go like way into the future, like what, what I see is like, there's, there's been an ongoing kind of debate, right? Is like, what, what's gonna deter crime? Is it severity of punishment, right? Or is it risk of getting caught? And I think there's people in both camps, but I think, I think generally the consensus is that, you know, severity of punishment doesn't drive people that think they're not, you know, it doesn't scare people that think they fundamentally will not be caught. And I think it's one of the arguments why people like argue about whether you should uh, have uh, capital punishment or not, right? It's like, is, is severity of punishment really gonna steer away someone that just thinks that they're lucky and they're gonna never get caught by the no, police? And, and I mean, you're right. I mean, it's, it's a, a, certainly a, a debatable topic that's gone on for years. And I mean, in, in, working, in working homicide and working violent crimes, I, my own personal opinion of it is I don't know any uh, any person that, uh, especially serial killer or otherwise, that that was thinking of the end result of the conviction of them going to jail, sure. of, of whatever, in at the time they were doing the crime, right? At so if, if you believe that, if you believe that, then the solution isn't threatening them with more punishment. The solution is to systematically work out these cases. Number one, take them off the street if they're right. actively that, doing that's, things. That's the biggest thing to remove and, them. So, but, that but number two is, I think, I think in actually closing these cases at a higher frequency, um, you will you will actually then create a true deterrent. So, so for example, if, if I knew that uh, you know, if if someone knew that uh, sexually assaulting someone, right, let's say today, they are identified fifteen percent of the time via CODIS. If I knew that in the future, the chance of being identified was eighty five percent of the time. There'll always be the guy that's crazy that decides he wants to go prey on somebody. I mean, people do right. things, but then, but then there'll be there'll be hopefully some folks that say that may not be the crime for me because it looks like I got an eighty-five percent chance of getting caught. And it could be sex assault, it could be homicide, it could be whatever. Um, if, if you knew that any crime you were going to commit had a high chance of you being identified afterwards, then I think some folks would would take a step back. So I think I think the long-term consequence of the technology is is to is to catch people. You know, to essentially drive repeat crime to extinction, that's kind of one mission we have. Like, there shouldn't be repeat crime. Right. If you're going like to do the person thing, who you have in CODIS that's been in there six, nine, yeah, that 10, should never 12, happen. You know, hopefully we'll we'll cut down on that, and and maybe at some point, maybe we'll we'll get to to TV mode, right? Where we go to the scene, we walk to our patrol car, we we swab the laptop, and all of a sudden now we have the 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 hit in five minutes, and we can go and solve the whole case in thirty minutes. Uh, I, I don't. That's good. It'll, it'll, it'll fit, into, fit into a TV program. <laughs> yeah. So I think I think our two our two goals would be to to drive down how often repeat crime happens, drive it to extinction, and then the other is to is to then again create uh, as a byproduct of a safer society, kind of a deterrent. Um, you know, make it very clear that if you commit these violent crimes, that uh, that there are technologies available to identify you, and uh, and that you will be identified. Well, David, I appreciate you coming in and, and sharing all the all the new technology, and, and we are so appreciative that you're right up the road. You're literally a couple blocks from where yeah. we work, and, and you certainly have helped us out in many things. And I hope that uh, getting this word out, that uh, reaching out to other people, that uh, certainly reach out to them. If you have a cold case that uh, you're looking to solve, you have an unidentified uh, person that, that you need help with, that's, that's what they love doing. They're very passionate about their work there. Uh, they'd love to hear from you. Uh, if you would like to have a different guest on the show, uh, reach out to me. And certainly if you'd like to sponsor the show, and I want to give thanks to uh, Planet Ford, who's actually right down the road from y'all. You can visit Planet Ford if you're in spring or planetford.com. And always to uh, Lone Star Radio for making this broadcast possible. And we'll see you next week. Thank you for tuning in.